Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Roadmapped, a podcast where we chat with product leaders around the world about their journey into product management and explore the decisions behind the products they work on. I'm your host, Sean Crow, along with my business partner, Thomas Kruczynski, and today we're super excited to welcome our guest, Eric Prue. Eric was the co-founder and chief product officer at PactSafe, which was recently acquired by the digital contracting platform Ironclad, uh, where he now serves as GM of Developer Platform. Eric, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Super excited to talk about product. Yeah. Um, so first of all, congrats on the acquisition. This is oh, super, you. super recent. So uh, I mm-hmm. bet it's very exciting to, to finally <laughs> let the world know. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It was a, a few months in the making. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pumped. I mean, great, great team, great culture, great product fit, like all kind of checked all the boxes. So we're super excited with how it worked out. Nice. Yeah, give us a, a sense of what um, what PactSafe is slash was and kind of what Ironclad is and why that acquisition made sense. Yeah, so PackSafe offers what's called a, a click wrap transaction platform. And um, that's a mouthful. Uh, but essentially what we help companies do is embrace the use of click wrap agreements, which are agreements that are executed or signed by checking a box or clicking a button rather than, you know, going through some proprietary electronic signature workflow. Companies like Wayfair, DoorDash, um, BMC Software and others have built online experiences where a customer would go to go somewhere, sign up for his product or service, and then check a box accepting terms of service as part of that um, workflow. And we offer lots of integrated tools that enable companies to better track that and to embrace that method of contracting with with their customers. So we do everything from electronic signature, more complex agreements, all the way down to the most standard terms of use that you would accept when buying a couch on Wayfair.com. And Ironclad is a digital contracting platform that allows you to handle all aspects of the contract lifecycle for business contracts, uh, whether it's sell side or buy side. And they they didn't have anything like a, a click wrap agreement tracking system in their purview. Um, they, they'd heard from a few customers that it was interesting and that um, they should consider building it out. They have integrations with these signature companies. Um, but really what this allows Ironclad to do is cover the entire gamut of, of contracts in a business for any type of company. So companies are, are moving more and more of their businesses online. They're providing more e-commerce, self-service kinds of experiences and making agreements a part of that experience is a logical kind of extension of enabling a faster, easier, more frictionless way of doing business for everybody. Um, And that's all kind of what we expect now anyways, um, especially in light of what's happened in the last year. So really it was a a perfect harmony of our products coming together and um, super excited to to see where we take it. Amazing. So is... Is PackSafe a pure SaaS platform or is it, uh, or is there kind of some managed services on top of it? Yeah, so it's all SaaS. Um, so we offer all sorts of tool development tools, APIs, SDKs that you can plug into your, into your experiences and workflows that connect back to the, the SaaS dashboard that 
Um, usually legal teams will log into to manage all these agreements, manage the workflows associated with them, and then they can easily publish updates that that automatically populate to all the all the right places. So in the case of like a Wayfair, they have, you know, seven different brands. They're live in four or five different countries. So there's a lot of different places that they would have to update. Um, so having one place, one SaaS dashboard they can go to that we're constantly updating to allow them to, to make those changes themselves is a, a huge win. Got it. So it, it's essentially a CMS for that legalese and the checkbox, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, that's so a, was... a great understanding of, of what it is. And then we also okay. like track individually who accepts that agreement and can prove it and generate a contract just as if they'd e-signed it. Okay. And so then can those reports then be used, I guess, in court if it needs to, you know, yes. like uh, to, to prove things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, okay. that's where the idea came from, where um, there's been a huge surge in litigation in this particular area where you have, you know, drivers suing Uber or customers of Eventbrite suing Eventbrite. Um, and um, a lot of times the companies can enforce them really you know, eventually, but it's painful. It's not automated. The legal team is not empowered to kind of pull this information on demand. So that's, that's really where the idea came from. We've seen a big surge in um, the use of screenshots of what screens look like at the time and day people accepted that we've actually built into the platform as well. So a lot of it's, it's really kind of interesting. So I, I came from MarTech, you know, marketing technology, um, which is a lot different. You're talking about ROI, you're talking about um, personalization and things like that. Whereas on this side, a lot of what we built has been driven by courts, by, by the courts, by case law, by, <clears throat> you know, our legal team that's, that's managing, um, what's happening out there and understanding what's happening out there. Um, so it's definitely was a change of pace when I, when I started and I was really kind of the, the SAS guy when I joined, um, but have learned a ton about the law and like what's legally enforceable and all that sort of stuff since since I started. Got it. Um, so Thomas and I, uh, I mean, being a, a development agency, we always dream of having a SaaS product because that's what every agency owner does. Um, <laughs> what uh, what do you have any numbers um, that you can publicly say? Like, I don't know if it's users or revenue or I know there's a big you know, push for transparency recently, but obviously going through an acquisition, maybe you can't say those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's, so we were post series A, so we we're about 40 people, um, 40 employees. Um, so we, uh, last year we grew, let's see, customer base by like 170%, um, doubled revenues nice. um, and double, doubled revenues in light of COVID really, which was, which was, very lucky um, and didn't have to go through any layoffs or anything like that. But I think we processed somewhere between two and 300 million click wrap agreements last year. Wow. Um, so that's, you know, 200 million people checking a box or clicking a button as part of some workflow, right? Which is that's insane. Yeah. And, and I mean, as part of that, you know, I thought you entire... were going to say two or th- three million. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I thought you were going to say yeah. two or three million, and then you said two, the hundred. I was like, whoa, wow! Like, yeah, two, yeah. I mean, we, we estimate yeah, that um, there's like almost a trillion click wrap agreements that have been executed to date. It's like the most prolific form of contracting because it's like you know Amazon does it with every transaction, you know, every e-commerce site that you that you see out there. You imagine Facebook like integrating DocuSign into their signup flow. It's like it's ridiculous to think about. So 
that's why this kind of agreement was was created. And it's kind of our vision to power the entire internet's, you know, click wrap agreements. Love it. Yeah. So, so tell us about then this transition into ironclad because going from founder to not founder <laughs> is a, a big transition. So what's your new, your new role here? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a big transition for sure. Um, great team. So I, I roll into the product organization now, as you'd expect. Um, one of the, one of the biggest opportunities I think for, um, for our platform is just tapping into the developer ecosystem. So a big part of what we do is powered on on APIs and integration into existing workflows. And we want to empower every organization to embrace that mentality where customer experience is, is leading the charge on how to be more innovative and delivering more products and services and experiences online. Um, we've been forced to do that in the last year as part of everyone being remote and not being able to go anywhere in person. And so um, lots of companies are investing their development resources, their product resources in enabling more self-service tools. And so what, what we've seen is that um, you have lots of different um, lots of different ways that companies are approaching this and different experiences that they want to build and in embedding agreements into those workflows is key. And so working with developers, providing easy tools for them to not have to worry about a complex, sophisticated integration into some other platform is really key for us and is key to has been key to making us successful. And um, it's very appealing to, to the Ironclad team. And I think they see a broader application of that strategy into where they take the platform. You know, they have APIs, but, um, you know, just taking a more holistic look at how we enable um, our customers that want to plug, whether it's Ironclad or PackSafe, which is now the acceptance portion of the Ironclad platform. How do we make it just an easier, better experience for developers? And how do we use the expertise that we've gained in the last six years to do that? Uh, how do you go about and structure your product team? Or how did you structure your product? Like, did you have different pods? or Like, what did that look like? And then how did that change with acquisition? Because now all of a sudden you have, like, some developers and I have more developers and more product people. And yeah, so how did that, how does that look? Yeah, great question. So we have... Um, we we operated a pretty small engineering team, I'd say, relative to our our size, which um, was kind of a badge of honor and just sort of something that we didn't do intentionally. But in looking at how Ironclad's engineering team and product team design team are made up, um, realize kind of in hindsight we could have done more to invest in our engineering team. Uh, but I, I think we're on a, a really good path. How now. many engineers were there? Um, our engineering teams about was about eleven. Um, prior to the acquisition, I think 11 or 12. Um, so we had, you know, a number of engineers that were writing code. We had some um, some managers and leads that were kind of helping mentor the team, grow the team. We had a designer, two QE. Um, we had kind of a security network type person. And then on, on my team, we had, so I owned product management, product marketing, design, and um, solutions engineering, which is kind of technical pre-sales. And that's a job I had before product, which we can talk about. Um, and um, I had two PMs, two PMMs, and a, one designer. So 
pretty, pretty skeleton crew. Um, and, you know, as far as building the team, we, um, over the years we've hired kind of front end and back end people, and we've transitioned more to hiring full stack, which I think has been, is going to be a great move for us. We, it's kind of a recent thing where we haven't asked front end engineers to do much API back end kind of stuff, but the platform's always been built API first. So, um, you know, that's, that started with the CTO from day one and I, you know, making a conscious decision. We had done that in the past and it worked really well for, you know, building things that scale that work well, that we can obviously expose to customers and allow them to take advantage of too. Um, it's something that, you know, I'm going to work to bring to the Ironclad culture as well. Um, but what I love about what Ironclad's done with organizing their engineering teams that I'm learning from and we're reapplying into how we're reorganizing the team is they've organized around key pieces of the product, but also aligning it to the outcomes that the business is trying to drive. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's a great structure that I think will work really well for us. And, um, uh, you know, excited to be a part of it and, and learn from very seasoned uh, engineering and product leaders that have, um, you know, in, in, I think they were founded like a year before us, but they've grown the team to like 200. Um, so, um, you know, now we're a company of 250 people working together to kind of apply what we both learned over the last six or seven years to, um, you know, drive the best outcome for the, for the company as a whole. Um, you know, so super excited about that too. Talk to us about this, the kind of the transition from having your own team of of 11 engineers and kind of merging them into this large organization. I imagine there's a lot of challenges that will come about um, from that. Or, or are you guys like keeping them completely separate for now? Just talk to us a little bit about how that's going. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what we're trying to do, I mean, the good thing is there's, there's little to no overlap with what we do. Um, so, you know, there's, there's places where we want to bring the two products together and integrate them. And we're bringing people from both sides of the, of the products um, together on some initiatives and projects that are going to be really good. And I think um, what's good is I think they're, they're pieces of both of our kind of plans that we're now able to achieve faster because of this, of, of this acquisition. And, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the rest, you know, there's a, a good part of our market and kind of size of, of what we're, what we were tackling as PackSafe um, that we'll continue to invest in and continue to tackle. And, you know, we were, we were planning to, um, you know, really double down and investing on doubling or tripling the size of the engineering team. And we're going to we're going to be able to continue to grow that as not as a standalone thing, but the things that we're working on are going to be related and core to what Paxif was doing before. Um, so, you know, I think um, as far as the transition goes, it's, you know, initially, obviously, there was um, a lot of excitement, um, a lot of distraction, you know, for a week or two. And now we're kind of just settling into really the details of how we're going to make all of this work, which is, which is fun. It's a new challenge. And I think everybody's having a good time figuring it all out. The most important thing is you have to get new hoodies. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. That, that's been my favorite thing about uh, the acquisition. I got this amazing green crew neck sweatshirt that is the comfiest sweatshirt I've ever worn. <laughs> there you go. We're, we're in the process of finally finally ordering some swag. Um, so hopefully we can find some comfy sweaters. <laughs> That's great. Yes. 
Um, so I want to go back to your previous role as um, head of product management. Talk to us about kind of the different hats that you wore and the different methodologies that you um, in particular practiced. You know, I've always tried, I've always tried to be a very empathetic product manager and product leader to our customers. Um, so being a co-founder of the startup, like one thing, so how I got into product was being in a, a sales slash customer facing role. Um, how I founded PackSafe, you know, I became our de facto CSM um, because I was technical and I also had customer facing experience. Um, and, you know, we kind of played rock, paper, scissors, and I, I lost, you know, or won, depending on how you look at it. Um, so I, I actually implemented our first 65 to 70 customers myself, um, you know, so doing calls, like working with our, our engineers at the time to like make changes and make updates, but we were super customer centric in the beginning. And we were very focused on, um, we probably took the product to market too early, but we sold it from the day we had a prototype all the way through to when we had something in production. And the big, the big thing there is we were going to sell it until somebody bit right? And get something out there, uh, make up pricing, try to shoehorn somebody into a deal where they'd be willing to pay for something and kind of go from there. And once we found uh, a couple of good customers that were willing to, to pay for the product, you know, they gave us a ton of great guidance in the beginning. And we've introduced features into the product now that are still being used are still widely adopted are the key differentiators to how we built such an amazing platform. And so I, I always believe and will always shift things around to serve customers that are giving us good feedback and direction and understand at a high level that that we need to apply things broadly to everybody and are willing to work with us on that. Um, so I'm super passionate about that. And um, it, it probably annoys other PMs that I work with uh, because I bring that lens to it because um, you know, I, I tend to bring very specific scenarios and try to work backwards into something that we can generally build for everybody. But I feel like we have done a very good job of building frameworks, of building, maybe creating a little more work for ourselves from a, you know, customer success perspective, where it, it may take a little bit more configuration, but it's more flexible, it's more extensible, it's built on a framework or platform rather than building like, you know, specific features or point and click kind of functionality in the product. And, you know, I think what that does is sets a good foundation for how we can improve and make it more point and click after we introduce it into the market and get some feedback on it and that sort of stuff. Um, but other than that, you know, I've, I think I, I've never really been a product manager other than very early days in the days of PackSafe. And so I was not great at managing the sprint plan, the, the backlog grooming, you know, a lot of the rituals that would happen in agile, um, I was not very well suited for. Um, we actually made the switch to shape up just over a year ago and, are huge fans. I think it fits much better as far as like how I think and write and work with engineers as a product manager. Um, I, I find myself to always be selling and building consensus on what we need to be doing, trying to listen and incorporate feedback. Um, and, and what ShapeUp allows you to do is develop a perspective, talk in, in terms of problems, prescribing solutions at a high level, and then letting really smart people figure out the details. 
And um, I, I've loved doing that. And find it, it, you got to find the right team to to work within that kind of structure. Um, and it's not for everybody, but it's it's worked pretty well for us. For the listeners that don't know, can you kind of uh, on a high level explain what ShapeUp is? Yeah, the the light bulb for me on ShapeUp was was around the simple concept of of fixed time variable scope. Um, and what I mean by that is when you are thinking about building a feature, you're talking to customers, you're specking out like what does this feature look like in our in our product, and you however you write the spec, whether you document, whether you write a PRD or whether you write, you know, user stories or whatever, whatever framework you use to write, generally you'll take that to to an engineer and say, you know, how long is this going to take? And then you break that into, you know, various sprints or whatever kind of framework you use to, to tackle the work over time. Well, within ShapeUp, kind of the methodology flips that on its head and says, you know, so this problem that I want to solve is only worth four weeks or six weeks of time to me. Um, that's the value in my head that I have assigned to delivering something of value. Um, you know, if something takes longer than that, we don't want to tackle it, right? So so for us, it, it starts with a conversation with our engineering team to say, can we tackle and deliver something valuable that solves this problem in a six-week time period? And if we can, okay, let's dig deeper. And then the focus becomes, let's deliver as much value within this thing as we can within six weeks and ship it. And if it's not to a shippable state, we just throw it away, basically. We haven't done the throw it away thing so much, but, you know, really it's, um, it, it forces us to focus and apply a defined amount of time and work with the engineers on, on refining what the scope really is once we get into the actual development of, of whatever solution we've outlined. You know, what it's, what it's allowed us to do is by assigning fixed times to things, when you think about roadmap planning, I have always been terrible at roadmap planning because you're trying to plan six to 12 months out for, for stuff that you, that may blow out of scope. And, and that's still going to happen in a shape up world. But you think in terms of like, what appetite am I willing to attach to these things? How much time am I willing to spend? And I can plot out where I think sequentially things are going to go in the short and longer term. Um, so it's been helpful. Well, how do you hold your ground um, when something, because it's like, you're always like so close sometimes at the end where like, well, if we only had, you know, like you explained that you had a four week problem, you know, or like you just want to solve this within four weeks time and that's how much time we want to devote to it. Mm-hmm. How do you stand your ground and justify um, like just throwing it away or shipping what you have when you could, if you spent like one or two more days or an extra week, it would be like that much better. Cause I feel like that's something so many people always struggle with and like just mm-hmm. kind of crumble um, to that. Yeah. Um, I always kind of use the terrible venture capital trope of um, perfect is the enemy of good enough. Um, and I, I always, if, we, we've come into situations where we say, you know, okay, we're just going to, we're going to move things around and we're going to, we're going to close this out. Um, like I said, we, we've not been good about just throwing things away. Um, usually we will, we will end up shipping it. And one thing that we've implemented that's been really helpful is, um, so with every, with every cycle, so we do, we do six week cycles. We're, we're considering changing that, but right now we do six week cycles and then we have a two week cool down. And effectively, the cool down is designed, it doesn't always happen this way, but it's designed to be the engineer's time 
to refine, to wrap up, to polish, you know, to really get the get the thing to a good place. And maybe we've shipped it already. Maybe we haven't, but it does allow them some extra time to, to round things out. Um, and, and generally, like the big focus that we've we've tried to implement and we've done successfully most of the time is you look at what the what the key aspects or, or pieces of value of what you're trying to ship are and you get to those things as absolutely quickly as you can like in a matter of days even if it's a six-week problem and you try to get to it as quickly as you can so that you could ship it and it would be functional and then you spend the remainder of the time refining redesigning reworking you know rethinking how it works even getting feedback if you can um, from the CS team or from the product team or from even customers if you if you have something workable. And that's um, in the times that we've done that, um, it has been super successful and we've been really pleased with what we get at the end, um, which is great. I love that concept. Um, we're going to have to borrow um, a lot of that because it, it would just be so useful on not only some of our like client projects, but even our just internal things as well and kind of mm -hmm. mindsets. So, um, mm -hmm. I have a, I have a, my ears perked up a bunch when you said you started selling the day you had a prototype. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Um, because I'm selfishly very curious and like, were you selling vaporware at that point or was this like somewhat functional or just like half baked? Like what, what, what did that look like and how many sales were you able to get with something that didn't exist? Uh, not many sales. I'll tell you that much. Um, but, uh, but that's okay. You know, that's, that's what we want to find out. Like, so when I came on board, so our CEO and founder, um, I wasn't I wasn't officially a co-founder when I joined because he'd been kind of nurturing this idea. He had hired some contract developers that um, that had built a working working prototype and not not to discount their skills or abilities. I mean, they they did a great job getting the prototype to where it was. But really, like what we found is it would not scale like when you do 200 million click wraps a year, you know, it's it's got to scale to be fast, highly available, super responsive. And, you know, I had had some experience thinking about that sort of stuff. And our CTO had experience implementing that stuff. Um, so, but we were out there selling it anyways, you know, um, and the first customer that we had that really went live with it, I think it delayed the loading of their homepage by like four seconds. I mean, it was, it was painful. Um, but, but really what we, what we started to find is, is this easy to implement? Like, what do our customers think about it? What do they care about? You know, what's kind of, what are they saying um, when they're, are they taking meetings with us when we talk about this? Are they taking meetings with us when we talk about that? You know, and it's like so many times people are, people are so conservative. They want to, they want to get beta testers. They want to give the product away for free. Um, when, and when you do that, like, you don't know what people are truly willing to pay for and what they're not, I think. Um, and I, th I also think that, um, by, by getting people that have skin in the game, meaning they're willing to pay for it, they're willing to try it out. Um, that's when you get the real feedback of what's going to make their lives easier. Um, so, you know, if I had to do a startup again, um, sorry, if I choose to do a startup again, not if I had to do it again, I, I would definitely do that the same way. And I've given other founders the same advice. It's like, so many people are like, Hey, sign up for the beta or whatever. It's like, just put it out there. You know, if it, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Like you can fix it. 
Um, and you know, you, there's not too much opportunity loss. It's not like you'll ever get, you know, one at bat with every single person, right? They'll always, I think people are going to be willing to give you a chance, you know, at some date in the future, if it doesn't work out in the beginning. Earlier, you said that you, you thought you, you brought it to market too early. How does that balance with getting that prototype out early? Like, how do you, how do you know what's too early? <laughs> Um, well, I knew it was too early because nobody bought it for a year um, <laughs> after it was out. Um, so, you know, I think it's I think that's just the natural life cycle of any company. It's like when you start a technology business, you don't really have a product from day one. So I think that was very natural that it took a year to get there. Um, but I, I don't I think we've released two we've released products over the years that were too early. Like they weren't, we launched something and it's like, Oh, that wasn't as ready for, for our customers to consume as we thought. Mm -hmm. And you know, the risk is it's like, they don't buy it. You, you do this big launch and it doesn't result in any like pipeline or new business or anything like that. Or worse, you know, you release something that customers don't like and it frustrates them and they choose to cancel the service, right? Or it causes you deploy something out into production and it causes like server outages and then everybody's angry and, and they leave you, um, which we've been fortunate has not happened very often, maybe, maybe once or twice. Um, so, you know, that's always the risk once you have a product in the wild that you're going to deploy something that only serves one person and you miss you, you kind of misstepped on the requirements and what, what needed to be delivered in order to deliver value for the customer. So that's, that's the biggest risk when you do that. And, you know, we, we've definitely not been the greatest there where we, we will build things, we'll release them. We'll, we'll let customers know that wanted it. And then we don't do a great job of like driving full adoption of that feature over time, which is, is something that I feel like we'll do a much better job of with more resources and kind of more thought that we're able to put, towards it now. Mm -hmm. When you initially launched, how long did it take you to find product market fit? And when did you even know that you found it? Like, was it this moment where you're like, we did it, we found product market fit? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I mean, we took a, we took a pretty, I wouldn't say a textbook venture capital route as far as raising and like hitting benchmarks and understanding things. I mean, I know when we hadn't achieved product market fit, like we tried to raise around pretty early that that did not go well. We got a lot of feedback that we didn't have enough traction. A lot of a lot of investors will look at at key benchmarks that you've hit along the way, um, like have you achieved a million in annual recurring revenue? Are you you know honing in on specific repeatable use cases that customers are seeing? You know, a lot of people do references to talk to customers and hear about the value that they receive um, and listen for similarities. I mean, really, like once we started seeing a repeatable number of customers that were not connected to the business in any way, we started to feel like things were picking up. Um, so it's kind of year two where we we built a, a couple of additional things and we started seeing buckets of customers kind of fall in and some of those were like these are good customers for us this is going to work out and some of them were like these are not good customers and part of it was like deciphering and building a strategy around that but you know once we started seeing some repeatability we started seeing people coming from different places that we didn't know like we had customers coming to the website through seo and just you know were interested in the product and bought it um 
we started feeling the pull and the momentum of where we needed to go and that, you know, where we needed to double down. And, um, you know, what we found is, is there were like three to four really good use cases that customers would bring to us. And by the time, you know, we got to end of last year, we were able to really describe the outcomes that we were driving for those customers very well and align almost every single deal that came in to one of these four kind of business outcomes that we knew a customer was trying to achieve. And then we could align like what the solution looks like and really tailor um, all our sales collateral materials to it. And that that's what you're really trying to do. I think as you grow and scale a, a SaaS startup, you are trying to get to a place where you understand the problem well enough that everybody speaks the same language, whether it's how you go to market, um, how you build the product, how you staff the engineering team or prioritize kind of backend initiatives. You know, the key is how do we get to that repeatable place where it's not, we're not reinventing the wheel every time we bring a new customer on, which a lot of companies struggle with, especially in the beginning. Yep, that makes sense. Um, cool. I want to get into the rapid fire here. I can't believe a half hour already went by. I just looked at the timer. <laughs> um, Thomas, do you have any questions before we get in there? No, I was just surprised when, you know, you were telling us about product market fit that like someone didn't send you a sticker or, or like, a <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. It's, yeah, I was shocked product too. market yeah. fit. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, you did it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Number, number one, what books are you currently reading or some that you recommend and they don't have to be product related? Yes. Um, I, the only product related book I've ever read is shape up. Um, which is, which is funny. I mean, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, um, but I love the shape up book. It changed the way I thought about delivering products. Couldn't recommend it enough. And it's like two to three hour read super quick. And it's published online for free. Um, love it's based on the base camp. The team at base camp wrote it. Um, who some may know as 37 signals. Um, if you're old <laughs> like me, um, they're, and they're other than that, they're so what's good. That? Oh yeah. Yeah. Love Jason Fried. And they're all, they're all definitely our favorite. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, I, other than that, I just love to mix it up with like fiction and historical fiction, nonfiction, all that sort of stuff. Nice. Any of those in particular that you recommend that come to mind? Oh, well, I'm a little bit of a, of a hist. Well, I just read masters of doom, which is kind of a fun book about the, the creators of id software who, who created the, the game doom and quake. Um, really funny, interesting cool. story about their, their journeys. So that was the most recent book I read. Nice. I'm going to look that up. Cool. Mm -hmm. Um, number two, what podcasts are you listening to? Um, why well, I, I listen to, uh, this American life almost every day and I'm a huge fan and just think I find inspiration in that, in that podcast. Um, just from, I mean, just the stories that they tell of all the different people. Um, I, I think, one of my favorites was, uh, so I have two very small kids, uh, four, almost four and almost two. Um, and there was an episode of this American life a couple of years ago where they recorded, uh, they set up a recording of kids at daycare with a phone that they would just pick up and like talk into the phone during the day. And it is one of the funniest shows that crack or one of the funniest episodes that cracks me up every time. Um, and I also listen to, uh, so I'm in Indianapolis. There's a great podcast that one of our product agencies here in town puts on called Better Product, um, which is a product management one. 
They have amazing guests as well. Um, definitely advise giving that a listen. Don't listen to the ones that I'm on. Um, <laughs> I've, been, <laughs> I've been on a couple times, but uh, they have, you know, people from Pinterest and Vision, like lots of, nice. I think someone from Pinterest was on recently. So that's a good one. Well produced. Cool. I'll have to find that uh, This American Life episode. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's great. Um, all right. Number three, what tools can you not live without? Yes. Um, so big fan of Slack. Uh, there are lots of obvious ones here. Um, big fan of Slack, big fan of Coda. Uh, I've just started moving to Coda, um, which I love. I can't live without it. I love the like, it's a, the best combination of Google Docs and Airtable that, I, that I've been able to find. Absolutely love it. Um, I also am a big fan of Product Board. Um, so we use Product Board at PackSafe, we use product board at Ironclad and the way it allows us to map customer insights. So I'm a huge fan of allowing customer insights to drive and feed what we prioritize in the roadmap. And there's nothing better in the market to do it than that. Um, you know, we've lived in Clubhouse and Jira for the software development lifecycle stuff. And it just it was missing something. And I think it's the mapping of insights to features that product board gives us. And then we, we power our public product portal through that. So customers can submit ideas and, and stuff like that. Um, other than that, I, I've also become a huge raving fan of Intercom. Um, so we use Intercom a lot and uh, and we're big fans. We use everything, you know, product tours, automated campaigns, all that sort of stuff. And I think they're a company that's really done it right. And when, I've taken a lot of how I look at product from, from Intercom as well. Nice. Uh, number four, what are your top three most used apps on your phone? Oh gosh, top three most used apps on my phone. Let me see. I can tell you. So, uh, Redfin. Any like real okay. estate fans out there? I mean, just in light of the pandemic, we have become huge fans of just seeing what's what's uh, people have done with their kitchens. Um, you know, what, <laughs> just generally a big fan there. Um, I've become a huge DoorDash customer. Um, so they're a customer pack safe. Full disclosure, but. Uh, we, we love the app. Like we use it first CVS. Now we get food delivery way too often. And then I'd say the third app is probably, probably LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn a lot. I, I post a little bit, but just love seeing what people are up to, what's happening in the market, all that sort of stuff. You're able to follow people, but also follow people that are close to you. And I've started to use Twitter a little bit more, but definitely more of a LinkedIn guy. Nice. Uh, number five, what app or tool feature have you recently been surprised and delighted by? Oh, I had, I had a thought on this. Gosh, what was it? You know, I've really gotten into, um, Loom actually. We just started using Loom, um, as part of the acquisition and it's, I love Loom. It's, it's, yeah, it's a great tool. My favorite I, thing in the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just a great way to communicate ideas quickly with one another um, and has been really helpful for for me and, and fun to play around with and, and share stuff. You know, I mean, obviously, we're a part of Ironclad now. They're learning about the product, the whole team. You're having to share all sorts of stuff. So getting into starting to use that, and I'm a big fan of it. Thomas is a, a, a Loom power user. He's, he's always like... If someone wants to do a meeting, he's like, I'm just going to shoot a Loom video for you. Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> I, I was looking at my stats. I was looking at my stats. I've done um, 
more than a hundred videos since like Jan- like January twenty something. Like Jesus. I just yeah, I just <laughs> that's I, awesome. There's so many. I, we use them a lot for sales and things like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's or just like product briefs or like getting you set up like what to do. Like yeah, it's great. Um, and it cuts it like lets you do so many things asynchronously, but like very like it, with a comprehensive answer. Yeah. So yeah, totally cool. agree. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, number six, who do you follow and get inspiration from? Oh, gosh. Um, I I follow people like startup people. I also follow I, one one guy I love is Aaron Levy of Box. Um, mm-hmm. He always posts really funny, snarky comments that really resonate with me because I find myself to be um, fairly snarky. Um, like I'm very optimistic, always optimistic, but I like to make snarky comments about things like, like he does. Um, and he always gives little nuggets of, of what the, what the startup days were like when he, when he found a box, which I, I think is great. Um, but I don't follow a lot of other people like him, even though I should. Um, I also follow a guy named Russ, uh, Ross Simmons, who's like a, a marketing content guru. And I don't, I've never been a marketer. I worked in marketing technology, so I've always just admired marketers from afar. And he always has great ideas on just super simple stuff on Twitter. Um, and I love it. And he's one that always stands out, out to me when I open my feed on Twitter. I don't know why. When, when Thomas and I were, uh, were in school, we spent our last semester in San Francisco, um, like working on a startup. Um, and we didn't know anything about the startup world, anything about like the development world or anything. And we went to this thing called box dev and it was, Mm -hmm. um, it was boxes, big conference. And I remember walking up to like the GitHub table and be like, what do you do? (laughs) 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 Like, just like a total idiot. Uh, but we got to meet Aaron Levy there briefly. So we got like a picture with him. I don't know. Oh, that's so cool. And, and we have, uh, like, so, uh, like swag still i don't know if you still have the <laughs> actually sweat, this, the i am literally wearing my github shirt from like seven years ago from that <laughs> from that oh conference. my gosh that's so cool <laughs> yeah yeah he's pretty cool i mean they've they've obviously built a great business and you know it's awesome yep all right last one number seven are there any product management trends that you're excited about in 2021 product management trends you know i think um one of the things I think I've been seeing in product management, I mean, like it's becoming a more formal, mature discipline. Um, I think there's, you know, I, I, I've learned a lot um, since uh, becoming a product leader, you know, had no formal training or anything like that. But you're starting to see curriculum. You're starting to see more definition around expectations. Um you look at platforms like product board that are emerging as um, really kind of career defining software platforms that are, that give product managers a a framework out of the box for how to be strategic and how to be thoughtful and how you approach product management. And I think that's one of the biggest trends that, um, that I've seen is it, it allows, a more strategic product manager to emerge. You know, you hear about product management in the Bay Area and like APM programs at Google and, and people kind of stealing that and, and working that into their own companies. Um, but, you know, we're based in the Midwest where product management is not a mature discipline at all. Um, so what I, I think 
you're just seeing more written about it. You're seeing more, um, you know, structure and discipline to companies that are doing product and you're seeing more strategy coming from product managers that, that may not have that kind of formal training, which, which I'm super excited about because what, what that, what that drives is, um, a more thoughtful approach to how you solve problems. And for, for us, getting my team, getting myself to shift to this problem mindset is, has been really, really important for us where, um, you have customers that bring ideas to you and make recommendations on what they want a product to do. Um, they don't have context for what other people are doing. They may not understand the root issue of what's truly causing this problem that ultimately they think they want to solve one way when it could be solved better in another way. And so encouraging my team to take that kind of approach, being led by customer insights, but ultimately digging deeper and deeper into the problem is allowing them to be more strategic in how they solve it, which I think is, is super important and something that I'm seeing, you're seeing more written about it. Like we use, we use problem statements to help develop and, and, and scope what a problem is. Um, and we don't prescribe a solution other than what ultimately, um, what the solution at a high level is not like the features and functions that we need to build into the product. And I think you just build a better product that way when you're able to, to take that approach. Love it. If any listeners want to learn more about you or ironclad, where can they go? Yeah. So it's just ironclad app, app.com. Um, and if you want to find more about me, uh, it's just Eric Brew on LinkedIn um, or eprew on Twitter. And I love talking all things product and connecting SaaS, tech, whatever it is. Um, I'd love to chat more with anybody who's interested. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me.